Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Rob Ford. Rob is a professor of political science at the University of Manchester and co-author with Maria Sobolewska of a new book, Brexit Land, Identity, Diversity and the Reshaping of British Politics. I know, Rob, following your career, you have an interest in this, in this broad topic, but what made you actually come to write the book around this topic? Um, well, I should divulge something about the, the author team here. We're actually husband and wife, uh, and uh, this, this book uh, has its genesis in sort of many, many dinner table, lunch table conversations we had because my wife and I have kind of complementary research interests. So I've long been interested in the politics of immigration and nationalism and national identity and the radical right. And she has done a lot of work on the, the politics of uh, ethnic minorities um, in Britain and elsewhere. And um, we decided that we wanted to try and write a book that brought those two together kind of we, we were already talking about it before brexit happened but then when brexit did happen we thought well an awful lot of people are thinking about this purely in terms of britain's sort of transactional relationship with the european union but we felt right from the outset that it was about a lot more than that uh, and that it reflected indeed the kinds of identity conflicts which regularly appeared in the kinds of political issues that we researched so we thought that this was an opportunity to place this dramatic event um, one of the most important events in the last generation of British politics into a broader context the broader story of long-term political change in Britain so that that was the goal of the book isn't it a, a bit of a paradox that we like to think of Britain as a, a racially, racially diverse kind of country, society, and very welcoming, accommodating to all kinds of different ethnic groups, and yet somehow we, we are not? Uh, to what do you attribute that? Well, I think that the resolution to that paradox lies in what I think is a very common... Um, a very common finding in social science but one that people tend to find rather difficult to process which is that it can both be true that things are better than they used to be and be true that things are still pretty bad <laughs> um, so it is definitely the case on more or less any measure that you can think of that Britain is a more open, more socially liberal, more uh, multicultural, more welcoming of diversity society now than it was 30 years ago or 50 years ago or 70 years ago. It is also the case that there's a pretty substantial portion of the population um, that views multiculturalism, diversity, mass immigration with a best suspicion at worst outright hostility so both of those things can be true and indeed both of those things both the the shift towards a more open society and the fact that that shift is a slow and incomplete process are central to to, to what we're arguing in our book essentially we're saying Britain is changing and how people um, view and come to terms with that change has become an increasingly important part of their politics what I find uh, odd or even confusing as a Brit, but as a Brit based in Brussels for a long, long time, is that people like yourself are saying that um, we, we should have seen this coming. This is bound to happen sooner or later, and a lot of people were not surprised by the referendum result. But why did it have to be almost like a referendum for this to become so evident? You know, a year before the referendum, there had been a general election, for example, the one been one five years before that, and so on and so on. So why did it... People say that it all culminates in this EU referendum as opposed to a, an ordinary general election. 
Well, I mean, things can be obvious in retrospect, but not in prospect. And indeed, that, that's that's one of uh, the great headaches of being an active politician is that that often is the case and that people will judge you very harshly for things which actually, when you were making the decisions, weren't at all obvious. Um, and we, uh, along with arguing that, you know, social change, demographic change is a really powerful force in politics, we also believe that politicians are not just passengers in dealing with that process, but but actors. So the decisions that have been made along the way have mattered. So 20 years ago, uh, it was already becoming obvious that immigration was a powerful political issue. Um, and 10 years ago, when the Conservatives came into power in, in coalition, it was obvious that this was uh, a top tier issue. But the Conservatives still had a choice about how they dealt with that issue. And they chose to adopt a policy of um, seeking to reduce immigration to the tens of thousands, which was doomed to fail. They did not have to, to frame the policy in that way. And indeed, the current Conservative government has explicitly abandoned a focus on numerical targets, in part because of the failure of that target. Its failure, in turn, opened the door to anti-immigration voters uh, backing more radical options and led to the rise of UKIP, uh, which I've pr previously written about at great length. The most successful third party from outside of the existing political uh, party system arguably in a hundred years, because the SDP was essentially a split at the elite level. Um, that in turn prompted the Conservatives to promise a referendum, and that in turn led to the referendum. So there were a series of decision points where things could have gone differently. Uh, right through also, of course, into the campaign itself. The campaigns for leave and remain could have been conducted in different ways and focused on different issues, and that would have been impactful. So it can both be the case that looking at these patterns of division, something was going to happen, uh, something dramatic. And it can be the case that what exactly, what form exactly that would take in politics um, is still quite up for grabs because it depends on the decisions that politicians make. I suppose we shouldn't concentrate too much on the Conservative Party, but having said that, they were more impacted arguably by the rise of, the, of UKIP, as you say. So it wasn't so much the fact that the, the Conservative Party had a deep ideological drive to, to restrict immigration or even listening to, to focus groups to help shape their, their, um, their manifesto pledges, if you like, but it was actually just the, the, the threat of, um, of UKIP snapping at their heels. Well, I think it was a little bit of both. I mean, another thing we go into in the book is that the Conservatives unusually for centre-right parties across Europe, have had a really large electoral advantage um, with um, what we call identity conservative voters, the voters who are more threatened by social change, more prone to seeing politics in terms of us against them. Uh, going all the way back to the 1960s, it's a, it's a legacy of Enoch Powell in particular, but also Margaret Thatcher. So they always had a kind of electoral incentive to cater to that audience because it was part of their electoral coalition in a way that's not true in some of the other European countries where the centre-right haven't did not adopt such an openly anti-immigrant stance so early and where instead that vote ends up with the radical right. So that incentive was there. Um, but then, in a sense, the people pushing that policy, in particular Cameron, um, they were not ideologically anti-immigration people. I mean, famously, the sort of Cameroon set were supposedly metropolitan, quite socially liberal, and showed that on other issues like gay marriage. But they clearly saw an electoral incentive. So it is a little bit of both. It's both the case that, you know, they, they were doing it in part because they're worried about UKIP poaching their voters, but they were also doing it because 
as a part, a result of their longer term history and reputation, there were a lot more of those anti-immigration voters there to, to poach. They were a lot more vulnerable on this issue because in the past they'd had a strong kind of anti-immigration reputation. As far as the Labour Party is concerned, of course, one tends to think of the Labour Party being obviously more pro-immigration and uh, more for social inclusion, all that kind of thing. Having said that, uh, when, at least when the Labour Party was in power, was it also guilty of maybe not such an overt way, but nonetheless of pandering to these anti-immigration tendencies? Um, I think it's, a, again, it's a little bit more complicated than that because it's, again, a mixture of sort of short-term and long-term tendencies and also... The problem of kind of geography uh, on this and demographics is, is more stark for the Labour Party because what was already happening in the 2000s and it's carried on is the Labour Electoral Coalition is changing. The traditional Labour Electoral Coalition, and Powell demonstrated this vulnerability back in the late 1960s, it's arguably the case that the 1970 election was won for the Conservatives by Enoch Powell winning over anti-immigration working class voters. Anti-immigration working class voters, or, or more accurately, anti-immigration voters with low levels of formal education um, and sort of very... Um, us, us against them identity politics were still a substantial part of the Labour coalition in the 2000s. So this was still a problem for them that losing such voters would be very difficult uh, electorally because such voters tend to concentrate for reasons of history in the seats which recently have become dubbed the blue wall. Um, you know, homogeneously white um, seats with low ethnic diversity, low immigration, lots of older voters with low formal educational qualifications. So they, they had a problem there. The problem was that they have another section of their electoral coalition, which is rapidly growing, which is socially liberal voters, university graduates, ethnic minorities, for whom anti-immigration politics was deeply problematic, not just in an electoral sense, but in a normative sense, in a moral sense. They regarded this as a, a wrong stance for a progressive party to adopt. So the difficulty was that Labour couldn't and indeed still can't win elections without holding on to a substantial part of this identity conservative electorate but holding on to that electorate when these issues is on the are on the agenda requires policies that are not acceptable to the socially liberal part of their coalition um, this is what makes identity politics identity conflicts so difficult for the centre-left because it drives a wedge between the two halves of the electoral coalition that uh, that they need they need both in order to win so i have some sympathy with them in that regard in terms of of the, the problem that they faced on the other hand some problems were also of their own making for example and most prominently Labour could, at any point between 2000 and 2010, have changed the citizenship rules to make it easier for settled EU migrants living in Britain to have British citizenship. There was majority support for that in the electorate. Commonwealth migrants have citizenship and voting rights from the day they arrive in this country. There's no reason why you couldn't have said after a qualification period of, say, three to five years, EU citizens resident here automatically gain voting rights. That would have been a very progressive thing to do. It would have been in their electoral interest, but they never did it. And of course, the 2016 referendum might have looked rather different if three million or so EU citizens had been enfranchised in that referendum. Well, talking about the referendum then, Rob, um, 
were you surprised and correct me if i'm wrong in terms of uh, maybe oversimplifying but it seemed to me that the the immigration issue was the, the most salient issue in the referendum uh, four and a half years ago now um were you surprised about that no not at all actually i mean the the truth of the matter is that no referendum vote ends up being about the narrow question on the ballot paper. It ends up being an expression of other currents that exist in politics. And often it's it's where emerging currents show themselves most strongly because the, the constraints of partisanship that normally structure votes are not, are not present in the same way in, in referendums. Um, and it was already clear that these kinds of issues, immigration, uh, um, national sovereignty, national identity, had been growing in salience for many voters. Uh, again, campaign choices matter. And there was an asymmetry, I think, in the EU referendum campaigns in that the Leave campaign ran a very strong, very divisive, very polarizing campaign focused on identity issues, focused on sovereignty, focused on immigration and so forth. Whereas the Remain side was much more transactional. There was no identity and values-based case for Europe put up front on the Remain side, uh, which I think when we see the politics since Brexit looks really in retrospect like quite an error because it turns out there are quite a lot of voters on the Remain side who, if they didn't see EU membership as part of their progressive values in 2016, certainly came to pretty soon after. Yeah. So it, it could have been activated and mobilized perhaps in that campaign. So I wasn't surprised that those issues came onto the agenda, but I think the way uh, the, the the, the asymmetric mobilization of those kind of values by the two campaigns might have been a consequential factor in the result we got. Some of the analysis of the referendum result uh, indicated that, uh, again, maybe if you like, paradoxically, that it was those regions of the UK which had relatively little immigration uh, were more likely to have voted leave. It was, and it was more like the, the regions which are more used to immigration were, were more likely to vote remain. Um, and one head on top of that, there was the issue about the, the pace of change and some regions which hadn't historically had much immigration, all of a sudden they found themselves, you know, the white local population, quote unquote, um, encountering more and more immigrants. Is that a fair analysis? Yes, yes. And it, and it illustrates the, the sort of complexity of the psychology around this, um, uh, which we spend a fair amount of time on in the book. So the thing with sort of identity politics with social group politics is it's a it's not about in fact like actually all politics it's about perceptions far more than it is about reality so it is not about the number of immigrants that are actually moving into your town or region it is about your perception regarding whether or not this is a threatening group and a threatening change if you feel that this is a threatening group and a threatening change you'll mobilize in response to it and that's what happened uh, number one. Number two, it's also about composition. So the reason, for example, that say, I don't know, like the, the, the non-metropolitan parts of the Northeast had very high rates of leave voting despite having very few immigrants is in part because the kind of people who live in the Northeast, older, um, socially conservative, uh, white school leavers, tend to be more chronically threatened by outgroups than the kinds of people who live in London, younger university graduates, uh, often with mixed heritages of various kinds. So it is 
both that the nature of the threat is perceptual, but also that the kinds of people who are threatened don't necessarily live in the kinds of places where um, the, the threat, quote unquote, is most present. If you actually look at the same kind of voters in London, if you look at older white school leavers in London, they were just as likely to vote for leave as older white school leavers somewhere else. There's just a lot less of them. Right. I can tell you're averse to oversimplification, <laughs> cause and effect. No, it's an academic, it's a chronic <laughs> feature of academics, I'm afraid. <laughs> having said that, um, maybe not north, south, or even, or even maybe income, but at least in terms of, of age, a generation, can, can it be said with some level of uh, accuracy uh, that the, if you're young, uh, you're more likely to be pro-EU than, than uh, the older generation? Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's accurate. I mean, it, it is, again, partly a sort of generational composition effects. The younger generations are much more, uh, far more graduates, um, far more socially liberal values more generally. But I suspect... Even under, under uneducated or less educated, rather, I should yeah, say. Yeah, I'm, I'm very averse to the word uneducated because it's, it's not about... Because people will then assume that what is meant by that is, is ignorance, and it's yeah. not. It's, it's a much more nuanced psychological story about what you prioritise and so on, not about, you know, knowledge and ignorance and so on. It's, you know, tribal thinking and, and less tribal thinking, I guess, would be one way of putting it. Um, but it's not just that, actually. Is I think there is potentially also a kind of socialization effect. It does seem that people who grew up before we joined the EU tend to be, tended to be more keen on leave, even allowing for the fact that they looked compositionally different, um, which I think needs more investigation, but does make a kind of sense because if you've grew up, quote unquote, outside, then perhaps outside it seems like less of a leap into the unknown than if your whole life has been spent inside a particular organisation. Do you accept a potentially another paradox, which is that the effect of us leaving the, the EU definitively at the end of the transition period, at the end of the year, will mean that the country is less well off economically. Uh, and that will impact uh, disproportionately those people may be less educated and, and less well off who voted for leave. Yes, uh, that, that's very likely to be true. But again, comes back to this issue of, well, again, this mix of two issues. Firstly, perceptions and reality. Because ever since uh, the, the, the EU referendum, Leave voters have become more economically optimistic, just as Remain voters have become more econom uh, economically pessimistic in terms of what they expect to happen with the economy. Um, and that's important because before, reflecting their different economic situations, Leave voters tended to be chronically more economically pessimistic. The second thing to bear in mind is where are these economic perceptions coming from? Uh, I mean, there's a great uh, anecdote which uh, Anand Menon and John uh, Portes from the UK and a Changing Europe are very fond of telling when they were doing lots of uh, educational events about uh, the referendum in the run-up. Uh, John Portes is an uh, economist and he would say well this is going to have a negative effect on GDP and a Leave voter in the audience piped up and said well that's your bloody GDP not ours. Mm, so yeah. people don't accept it as reflecting their own local experience. If, if you've spent the last 30 years in Grimsby or Hartlepool or Barnsley, it's just been grim. Incomes have stagnated or fallen. Factories have shut. The, the local built infrastructure has decayed. You don't see a positive economic story there. And so if you're told, well, there's a risk that this is going to make things worse, a lot of people will respond, how much worse can it possibly be? And this is a common feature in politics. It was a feature in Trump voting as well. People will gamble on the unknown 
despite the fact that those of us taking a national view will say, well, this is a gamble you're likely to lose, because they really don't feel they have much to lose. They have much to lose, right. What I find also, again, and I'm coming back to the word paradox again and again, is there's, there's a lot of, has been a lot of talk since the referendum results uh, became known, but certainly more more recently, is that the, the Remain camp and its broadest manifestation should make more of an effort to understand now why, why the Leave voters voted to leave. Um, but it strikes me also that um, I think one of the frustrations on the Remain side was, of course, they were talking, even if you say it was in, expressed in transactional terms, uh, erroneously, uh, about membership of the EU. They weren't talking about immigration necessarily or other issues, whereas the Leave camp were. And so it's almost as if not not exactly a meeting of minds there in terms of what we're talking about the same topic or not. Well, yeah, they, they, they clearly were talking about different subjects uh, in the referendum campaign. But I also think that... that I'm not. So, I mean, like, it's become a bit of a cliche. Or oh, Remainers need to get out of their metropolitan villages and go and talk to Leave voters, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, and, uh, you know, I mean, I, I have some sympathy with it for the reasons we discussed, but I, th I think it's overblown. I actually think it would be better for Remain voters to reflect on their own psychology. You know, uh, do do the armchair psychology thing rather than the you know amateur anthropology thing, um, <laughs> because are they really in love with the EU because of the you know uh, marginal GDP benefits it brings? Yeah. On the whole, I think no. Did they really know very much about the EU institutions that they claim to have more knowledge about before the EU referendum? On the whole, I think no. Their attachment to the EU, just like Leave voters' antipathy to the EU, is based on broad value orientated heuristics they have a sense that this is a good thing that people like them like that is good for european society generally and helps to produce the kind of europe or world that they want to see and therefore they support it that doesn't make them so different from leave voters at all actually it doesn't make them so different from voters in general at all that's how most of us make our big political decisions we don't you know we'll look into the detail sometimes and some of us you know who do it for a living will know the detail very well but most voters think is this in accordance with the kind of world i want to see is this in accordance with my values and the values of people i respect and then they support it is it against the values I, uh, I respect? Is it supported by people whose politics I condemn? Then I am against it. You know, and I, I think most people, if they reflected on their own decision process, on the Remain side, would find actually their, their, their thought process is not so different from that of some of the Leave voters that they're criticising. Right. I want a final question. I want to bring it back to, to immigration, Rob. Um, the, the statistics show that uh, since the referendum, uh, the net uh, immigration to the UK has gone down and more people leaving the country for pretty obvious reasons. Um, and there's obviously going to be a skill shortage in, in all sorts of sectors, not just high skills, more critically in maybe lower skill jobs as well. Uh, do you think there's a, there's, a, there's a recognition, not so much in political elites, because they are what they are, what they are, but amongst the, the public at large, that maybe the, 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 the tide has gone too much the other way? Well, um, I, would, I would put it slightly differently. I, I think, you know, the, the tide has turned. Whether it too far is... Um, it's a tricky question to answer. I, I think people won't want this question reopened very quickly. But I think on a number of metrics, we've seen the politics of these issues shift in a liberal direction. I think nothing ever stays still in politics. You never step in the same river twice. Um, uh, immigration politics, which is where I began this long process of, of understanding Brexit, 
I mean, the, the shift there is far larger than I would have anticipated if you'd have asked me about it in 2016 ahead of the EU referendum. It's the biggest, most sustained, most broad-based shift in immigration attitudes in a liberal, positive, open borders direction that we have on record in public opinion data for this country. Like, nothing like it has ever happened. Um, that makes the politics of that issue and the broader identity politics around that issue really different going forward. Because number one, it is no longer the case that immigration restriction is the obvious electoral bet, even for the right. Um, there, are, there are now substantial electoral costs to being perceived as anti immigration uh, in a way that just really wasn't the case even even five years ago uh, let alone 10 or 20 or 40 years ago secondly a lasting consequence of the eu referendum is that socially liberal open border pro-eu type people have a political identity that has survived the referendum process they think of themselves as remainers it's part of how they think uh, of themselves and of others that's an identity that has meaning to them that is automatically called to mind and that can potentially be mobilized by politicians going forward so that changes the dynamic of pro-eu socially liberal politics you've got a tribal identity almost that you can call upon in making your case. Um, so I think that the politics of this will be different going forward because one of the characteristic features of like the politics of 2010 through to 16 was the right had all the Trump cards. They had the more mobilized side, they had the more vocal side, they had the more organized side. Um, th their voters were more focused on these conflicts than their opponents were. I think that, that going forward, it's gonna be a much more even um, debate because I think the liberal side is now mobilized in, in, in a way that, that wasn't the case before. Okay, that's a fascinating point in which to finish. Rob Ford, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.